Weekly waits, Will goes on dates and Hayes is late, but we're still mates. And as of late, we educate and postulate about the gym. I lift more than both of you combined. Oh yeah, this is Weekly Waits with Alex and Will. Welcome to episode 104 of Weekly Waits. I'm Alex Hayes. I'm Will. We're actually together today, which is a glorious moment. Yeah, if you, there's a peculiar spike in quality, not of the content itself, but just of the audio. Oh quality. yeah, don't expect any spikes in content today. <laughs> no, but but we're back in we're back in studio. I would say this for the first time. It feels like a podcast studio. Will's just sorted out his home office, and he's got a couple of computer screens. Few he's got GameCube controllers. Yeah, he's got everything. It's all happening here. Um, yeah, we, how many screens have we got operating around us right now? At least six. <laughs> I mean, the, the actual answer is five, but there's there's a lot of screens. That doesn't necessarily mean there's a lot of information on the screens for us to distill, but it certainly does feel... It feels like much better of a podcasting experience than we've had in a few months, and I'm thrilled. Yes, and it, it does feel like things are calming down in Australia, at least with COVID. We uh, found out yesterday that New South Wales gyms will be opening from next Saturday, which is awesome, and I, I feel like... They've opened in ACT already and Queensland already. Yeah. There's going to be a few practical issues around that though. Like I know, I know there's going to be limitations on the number of people who can attend and like the number of people in classes and people are going to have to wipe down equipment and stuff, which is going to make things like PTing and, and running like any type of sort of super SETI or circuit type session difficult. But the biggest one that strikes me is like the four square meter rule. Because obviously, like, if you're as muscular as I am, then that four square meter zone around you just becomes, like, obnoxiously big for other people in the gym. And so I can imagine that certain places that I work at probably won't want me to exercise because with a pump, I'm going to exclude almost anybody else from training. So I guess for people like Will who are larger, Mm. um, just pair yourself up with someone who's smaller and then you can have some of their space. Yeah, and that's more or less what I was thinking when we started this podcast, Alex. I was like, I better get a... Get a fucking puny offsider and <laughs> work with them. Okay. We actually And are, that's why Brandon's here. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> um we actually are going to talk about the implications of COVID nineteen um in this podcast. Um we're gonna talk about what's changing in the competitive landscape for powerlifting as a result of COVID and some practicalities and just just sort of what's been running through our head with regards to that. But before we do that, Alex received some reasonably complimentary mail which i feel like we ought to read yes so we got a message on the weekly weights uh podcast instagram and if you're not following already please go and do uh it's just at weekly weights podcast on instagram uh from andreas papa 21 and we've answered a few of andreas's questions on our own q a's and stuff and we've i think we've answered his questions on the podcast before as well Anyway, he says, Hey guys, hope you're doing well. I am the Fresh Prince of Boleyn. Oh, so he's the guy who gave us our last review, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm genuinely press, impressed with how well you guys actuate... Act, far out, I can't, spe- I can't speak. I'm genuinely impressed with how well you guys interact with the fans on the podcast. I thought he was going to say how well you guys articulate, which would have just been amazing. That would have been way that. better. Yeah, go on. I didn't think he'd get around to my questions, let alone reading the review on the pod. That was very exciting. I binged a lot of the episodes last year during exams, was walking around on study breaks, doing the dishes and housework sort of stuff. I've learned a lot from you guys about programming fatigue management and the personalization of each lifter. 
cookie cutter program slash healthcare really annoys me, so I'm glad you guys are out there sending the right messages. Sorry for the paragraph, boys. Just wanted to say, love your work. Keep it up. If you guys are ever in Melbourne for seminars or powerlifting duties, I'd love to pick your brains a bit. Smiley face. Cool. Well, firstly, that's very kind. I don't have access to the Weekly Weights Instagram, so any messages you send there are effectively going to Alex. Um, so that's very kind. I hadn't actually heard that message before. Thank you, Andreas. He's, his actual name's Andreas, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. Thank you, Andreas. That's very, very kind. And there is a possibility that Alex and I will be in Melbourne later in the year for for seminar duty and I presume at some stage for comps so we'd be thrilled to chat to you but guys if you do if you do want to write us reviews leave them on iTunes you can even leave comments on Podbean we will read them out on the show um, unless they're rude or vilifying minorities or anything Um, we'll read them out on the show and we'll respond to them as best we can we do really enjoy hearing your feedback and obviously for the sake of our analytics and stuff the more you share us on social media like comment review all that stuff the better but thank you that was nice it was nice should we talk about the actual podcast topic we should all right well why don't we get on onto that so firstly let's set the scene late 2019 a novel coronavirus breaks out in china it seems to be centered around a wet market in wuhan although certain intelligence officials from the u.s have apparently tried to push the idea that it could have come from a lab Will, you should do journalism. You reckon? Mm. <laughs> anyway, so this coronavirus, whether or not you've heard of it, it's turned out to be quite a big deal. Um, so before too long, coronavirus was all over the world. And as a result, a lot of us have been in lockdown. Again, you may or may not have noticed, but there's been a lot going on outside. So <clears throat> yeah, all those Zoom meetings went for nothing. No, not for nothing at all. So, so coronavirus happened. And as we're sort of coming out of the back end of restrictions in Australia and in certain other countries as well, um, the prospect of competition for powerlifting has arisen again, which is excellent. Um, And, you know, other community sports programs starting and stuff again is also great. I think it's the type of thing that's going to do a lot to make people feel good in society and provided we can do so with the appropriate sort of safety measures in place to not increase the risk of infection and stuff it's going to be like overall a net positive. So that's really great. Um, However, coronavirus has disrupted a lot of high-level competitions. So I don't know whether IPF World is due to proceed. They were going to run in Belarus, weren't they? They moved it back to October, did they not? I think they changed the date. But if it was going to run in Belarus again, I know that the Belarusian, if that's the correct way to say Belarusians, yep. Is it? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, the Belarusian um, president is like full-on tinfoil hat, like doesn't believe that COVID-19... Um, I'm just going to fucking call him out. He, he has no jurisdiction here that I know of. Um, he, yeah, he basically doesn't believe that coronavirus is an actual health concern. And so he was out publicly being like, nah, fuck it, everybody go hang out in the park. Um, I don't know whether his tune on that's changed. But that was as of like five or six weeks ago when the whole world was like, nah, fuck, this is really bad. He was like, keep everything open. Don't let them get us down. Like, fuck that. So if it's to be held there, which I think it was, there's a decent chance that it will be held. But exactly how good of a competition it'll be is another question because I know the US has decided not to send a powerlifting team, which has upset a lot of people. But that's due to safety concerns and that's probably reasonable and good duty of care on their part. Um, The Sheffield which was the, the big invitational competition bringing the highest performers 
across all weight classes in powerlifting together to compete for a big cash prize has been, I believe, delayed until next year. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so we've got sort of the two big flagship international events for raw powerlifting that are basically being kicked back and possibly hamstrung. And for Pro Raw was cancelled. Pro Raw was cancelled. And then on the world powerlifting front, um, we've got a couple of events that are uh, invitationals in inverted commas due to be run in July. And what they're going to do is run them as um, multi, multi-venue events to because people won't be able to travel. So, you know, people from the Pacific and New Zealand and so on will compete at the same time on the same day as people in Australia, but in separate venues. Um, nationals for world powerlifting in Australia was going to originally be split so have the majority of the cohort compete in september and then have an invitational run in october it's now looking like everything is going to be run in october or that's although that's yet to be confirmed um but but basically high level competition is up in the air and then you lay that you overlay that with the fact that a lot of people's training schedules have been disrupted and stuff and we've got just a very very peculiar competitive environment that's unlike anything that we have seen and is likely to be unlike anything we will see for most of us as coaches and competitors in any other year in our lives so alex before we even get into questions do you like what are your broad impressions about what powerlifting and how powerlifting the sport is going to operate now i don't know what they're, they're planning on doing as far as like the actual competition themselves how they will run but it seems like it's just going to be a little bit careful to begin with and they'll slowly add things in just like they've done with all of the restrictions um so i presume the first port of call is no spectators reduced number of spotters uh probably one coach per lifter um that's probably that's probably all i can think of at the moment cleaning equipment between attempts potentially um maybe not everyone sharing the same chalk bowl and all that kind of stuff that actually that was all getting into practicalities which we will talk about what i what i was actually trying to get to and i just phrased it terribly was like the so i would say i envisage the sport of powerlifting as being this thing where it's like a hobby that you do that you just happen to be able to compete in right like most people who are powerlifters are powerlifters because they like training and lifting heavy weights they like measuring their progression competitions allow them a chance to do that and then if you happen to be really good then you take that to a higher level and that's what you do and interference in our training routines and in our competition schedules is going to change the way in which a lot of people interact with the sport um, because that competitive draw card at the end might be taken away for many people but all i think that will happen for lots of people who are like powerlifting hobbyists is that they'll pull back on their competitive experience and just focus on training and for the people who maybe use competitions as like an extrinsic motivator it might be a really tough time but for a lot of other people they might just sort of be keen keen trainers who just let competition sit to the side that's sort of how i'm thinking a lot of people will operate do you agree yeah i think like you mentioned people do this for a hobby so there's no reason why you can't continue to to be a hobbyist Mm. and just continue training and you know potentially max out in the in the gym with friends or max out in your home garage if you have um equipment um and you know we talk about delayed gratification a lot it may just be a period of time over the next six to 12 months where we have to delay gratification a little bit further and we just push that competition back a few more months or even a year yeah i think i did somewhere in my notes here so guys i wrote notes for this episode they're terribly disorganized <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm gonna claim full responsibility to if this conversation meanders 
Um, having said that, I kind of set you up to then have me play devil's advocate against you because like while lots of us are hobbyists, if you're an international competitor who is like truly trying to chase a world record this year, has had a great year's worth of training and has maybe like put in eight or nine months of prep between the last worlds and now hoping to set records. Or if you're a competitor who is like a really high achieving junior um, who is about to go into the opens and maybe thought they had a chance at winning a world title or like you're coming towards the end of your most productive years in powerlifting, what might what might for hobbyists like you and I not be the biggest deal, like it's an inconvenience, for them could actually be really, really significant though, right? That's that's throwing a big spanner in the works. For sure. And I think I think a lot of those people who are at the top level think similar similarly to we do and they actually compete less frequently so i don't think that it'll necessarily be a huge issue for them to delay things a little bit further Mm. um because you know the people at the top of the sport are the ones who kind of put their head down regardless of whether there's a competition happening and they do that for years and years on end and that's why they are at the top so i don't see why this isn't just a extra long period of that yeah i guess i guess to some degree that's true although again like I can't help uh, but think if you were somebody like, like say, Fedosienko or whatever. What I do, what I do agree with though, is that if you are particularly a young lifter and you have a record that you're eyeing, and now you just have no chance to actually attempt it, that sucks. But you know, like you probably didn't get into the sport to set the record in the first place, so it was probably a secondary thing or something that you uh, aspired to later down the track. So it may not necessarily be the end of the world. Yeah, and there's also there's a funny thing about records, particularly in powerlifting, is it's like even if you plan to set them, it's always kind of down to circumstance whether you actually get to. Like if you're competing at Worlds, unless you're somebody who literally shows up not intending to actually do a good performance, you just want to set a record on one lift. <laughs> Alex just called somebody in particular out for that. But unless you're somebody who does that, which I think makes you a bit of a tosser in most most instances... Unless that's the case, like you're, pr- it's pretty much down to circumstance whether you attempt a record and by how much. Because you know, if you like, if going for a record that's not a sure thing potentially sabotages your chance at say placing more highly or or you know winning gold or whatever it happens to be, then it's usually a bad decision. And you know, it's just like you can never sort of tell what the circumstances are going to be on a competition day anyway. So it's possible that like lifters who are like, oh shit, I've trained to set this record and now my chance is being taken away. I may be catastrophizing more than is reasonable given how much probability or like chance still plays a role in what they're able to do. Mm-hmm. And um, I heard on a podcast recently talking about uh, young kids playing sport yeah. and how the you know people in the you know eight to twelve year old range who develop a lot of skills during that time are the ones who are the most suffering during this period because they don't get to play they don't get any contact they don't get any you know hours on the field or the court or whatever the sport is and that's just not really the case with powerlifting yeah if you have a barbell and a rack like you can continue improving and you can continue getting better so i think um in the global landscape of all sports powerlifting is probably the least affected yeah and powerlifting we also don't really have like soccer dads you know when you're like an eight-year-old kid and you're a prodigious soccer talent and basically your dad just makes you feel like you're a fucking worthless human if you don't score four goals against like the Linfield under eight Bs or whatever when you when you play your little 20 minute games on the weekend and like you know you spend all your time drilling in the park and being told you're not good enough and shit 
powerlifting, most people don't get in it until like their growth plates have sealed. So it really takes away the chance for your parents to like fuck with your psyche. Just uh, just Ernie Lily Ridge. <laughs> <laughs> He's the only powerlifting dad out there. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Actually, we did um, on episode two. Remember when we spoke to Amir? And we were, and he was talking about how when he has a kid, he's gonna fucking make him a champion athlete. He's gonna be like Andre Agassi's dad and just fuck him up. Tiger Woods dad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, actually, you know, while we're on that, Michael Jordan's dad. So, obviously, James Jordan, correct? Yes, James Jordan. Yeah, tragically killed um, during the '93 season. Four. Four. Three. Three. It was in the end of the '93 season. Yeah. Um. So he was tragically killed. But in the in the documentary, um, which I really really enjoyed, the Last Dance. Um, it sounded like during during Michael's upbringing, his dad was actually like a like really overbearing and hard on him for for not being able to achieve things and perform tasks and stuff. Well, is that how much of your basketball knowledge does that sort of resonate with? Is that true? Um, I don't think he was. Like he wasn't Tiger Woods or Agassi level overbearing, but yeah, he was certainly like he certainly pushed him to be better. Yeah, because I know there was a lot of like in the documentary they tried to make it out that like a lot of Jordan's competitiveness came from the environment that he grew up in at home, where dad was like achieve or fuck off, and his brothers were really competitive and were happy to like punch him. Yeah, basically. I think it was mostly, I think it was mostly his older brother and not his dad, Larry Jordan. I think it's Larry. Um, I think it was mostly his older brother who was just better than him and would like tease him and bully him because he was better than him. Yeah. So that was like Jordan's way of like getting back at him, working harder and just being better. Man, how fucking vindictive do you have to be where it's like, I know you beat me at my little fucking backyard game of basketball, but I'm going to be literally the greatest team sports athlete of all time <laughs> just to get my own back. <laughs> all right. Let's get into like the actual meat and potatoes of this discussion. So... Practically, what are the implications of adjustment to our competition schedules? So let's say we had athletes who started the year annual plan was like, we'll do a comp in June, we'll do a comp in like November, December, blah, coronavirus hits. There was a novel coronavirus that arose in Wuhan, China, late 2019, spread around the world. That hits. <laughs> um, and now everyone's like, oh shit, obviously competition was nixed through the middle of the year. Some people's training circumstances have changed heaps. We're trying to get back on um, back on the horse. What are the practical implications for us as trainees? Like, let's talk from the athlete perspective here of these adjustments to our schedule. Well, the first thing is like everything is still up in the air. Like there, there may be dates already for competition, but because, you know, people have previously had competitions cancelled at the end of March and early April and May, um, it might make it, difficult to pull the trigger on entering a comp because you're not sure if it's going to go ahead i think that's probably the first thing and then because of that you're kind of just in this sort of cycle of confusion where you don't know when you're going to be able to compete again you can't really plan your training cycles out so that you peak probably for the comp so i think that's probably the first thing it's just the big question mark yeah and that question mark like i have a couple of clients who were maybe considering doing nationals in september when it was first announced so we sort of like made our contingency plans around that. So we went from like a holding pattern, which a lot of people were doing where we were like, let's just find the most productive training we can do in lockdown and basically oscillate around a reasonably similar looking block, give or take some adjustments to like rep ranges and exercise and things as we go. We went from that to saying, oh, great, like we'll work towards September. That's been changed. Now we've pushed it back to October. 
So a bit of that certainty is gone. But then for some other people who've gone, I can't do the October date, say, for nationals. I'm going to compete earlier or later because the calendar broadly is so up in the air. They can't even like pick a date truly to work for. So there's a lot more ambiguity. Um, and then another one is another one is that like because your training cycles have been cut up and potentially interrupted or like sorry not interrupted affected by the availability of equipment like if you did have an annual plan that was that was designed to sort of have you like peak for a priority comp in december it's not to say that like the six months of training you've done until now have been wasted but it's going to have deviated a lot from what the on paper approach was which means you're going to probably have to do a decent amount of chopping and changing of the training from now to still have you on track in the way that you had envisaged there you know yeah 2020 was the worst year to write yearly plans super bad and thankfully for my own clients i don't really do any form of long-term planning at all i if anything i write one to two days of training and say why don't you give this a whirl and just like do what you feel for the back end of the week and we'll see and then i just say repeat that mesocycle that or microcycle that looks good Mm. you know Mm -hmm. it's very like emerging approach um bi-weekly emerging (laughs) yeah exactly um now periodization's a meme man it's all about like you manipulate the peri training environment to optimize the athlete and then you just let them do whatever they want and they feel empowered um until until they don't get anywhere for like six months and start questioning who they are um because empowerment equals power yeah that's that's it that's why we call it empower lifting so (laughs) so so the big practicality is like the ambiguity around training planning interruption to to best laid plans and then um now the other thing for that also is because of the ambiguity we're not going to have these high level competitions that are going to be as competitive so it actually brings brings down the kind of desire to do one of those high level competitions because you have that in the back of your mind that everyone may not be there yeah and the thing that i was going to say that's very much true the thing that i was going to say is also that because we're operating with more ambiguity your time scales for prep are probably going to be shorter so say it is that you come out of lockdown now, it's June, and you want to compete in August, but you don't know you don't know which week of August a local comp's gonna be available in, and it's only confirmed that there's a comp in August five or six weeks out, you kind of done a fourteen week prep for that competition. You have five or six weeks. So probably in terms of the training that people do now, if they do want to compete, they are going to have to do training that positions them well to compete. Um, or to peak reasonably quickly or settle for a less complete peak which might not always be a bad thing yeah and to add to that because training hasn't been optimal during this time some people may be deterred from competing because they may not think that they're going to be able to be capable of pbs when they get the time to compete Mm. well let's actually move on to the psychological part of it because because that was a pretty good segue i think i think a lot of people are going to have shaken confidence um, coming into competitions and particularly if you're if your preps are a little bit haphazard like you said um, and a lot of people for whom they've had to sort of reappraise what they're enjoying about training and like and whether or not they enjoy training hard at all given the changes in their circumstances and then possibly will have to deal with like adjustment again because I think everybody had that period of adjustment of like is training as enjoyable is life as enjoyable and shit when we went into lockdown when we start coming out of it everyone's going to be like ah oh, like the real world again um, and that might also play into their training. And so I think, I think the athletes generally um, that are trying to compete now or trying to really push themselves are going to have to deal with some sort of novel psychological barriers too. You're, you're nodding. Is there much you want to add to that or are you pretty well just in agreement? 
No, I'm in agreement with that for sure. All right. Um, so, what about multi-venue competitions from the athlete's perspective? I have a few thoughts on this. Um, from the athlete's perspective, I think it kind of defeats the purpose of competition because competition implies you are competing against someone who's in the same building as you mm. and you are aware of their attempts, they're aware of your attempts. You can watch their... Your, your coach can watch their attempts and select... Um, yours based off them and you know you can vie for position and attempt selection and all of those things so I think um, if you truly want an actual competition and not just to do a comp at th- that time because I think if the timing works for you like if you've been training and stuff and you're able to um, just work straight into a, a comp prep and it works in your calendar and timing wise then sure go for it so long as you're aware that it's not going to be like a, a normal high level competition in that regard in that regard yeah i have pretty similar feelings with multi-venue comps um and also personally for me as an athlete i find it much more motivating even if i'm losing i find it much more motivating to feel like the people that are that i am vying with are next to me um and i think like i'm not like this but if i was somebody who was extremely competitive and hung up on it the possibility that somebody who was competing in another venue had more lenient judging, like better warm-up equipment, timing that better facilitated them, you know, any number of things, like an atmosphere that was nicer so it was like less humid and you grip the bar more easily. Or even potentially just uh, they were competing two hours after you and they found out your results so they just chose their attempts to beat you. Yeah, any of those things I feel would would impact the way in which i viewed the competition yeah that quote-unquote win wouldn't feel the same yeah like well whether it's a win or a loss for me i think i think yeah in either case that would sort of bother me a little bit um and particularly in the case of like an invitational competition i think you know you and i have both competed internationally and you've done a couple of comps at expos and like part of the thing that makes that really enjoyable is like is the feeling of prestige like having other people around you who are high level lifters and feeling like you're involved in one special event and i feel like having that dispersed and everybody doing what is actually a local comp and comparing results isn't quite going to capture the same thing at all and like there's nothing that can be done about it i'm not i'm not saying this to like shit on the whole concept but it's certainly it cheapens the experience a little bit of something i think is quite special yeah it's like when when we had nationals in 2018 at the expo and there was also world powerlifting worlds going on at the same time in america yeah that was a shame which was a shame and it meant like you know anthony krisner for instance was supposed to compete against cameron um they both ended up competing against no one Mm. and you know if you compare their totals they're not the same circumstances so you can't say oh cameron beat cameron out totaled krisner therefore cameron would have beat him in a competition because they didn't actually go head to head yeah there's a this is an analogy that's really niche so alex i can already say you're gonna hate this esports oh god (laughs) so video games a lot of video games are doing online competitions right now because normally esports competitions pretty bizarre things get a whole lot of quite nerdy people i gotta say into one building um often people dress pretty funny um they all compete um and when you're competing in the exact same venue using the same video game console or computer or television or whatever there's there's obviously no time delay between when you input something on your controller say and when the other person can respond um but that is what competition is taken to be in esports 
and with web-based competition, particularly in games where where speed of reaction and stuff is really important because it does introduce delay in the game. It means strategies that in person are reactable sometimes become unreactable. So say the fastest you can respond to something is one-tenth of a second, which is actually not far from correct. Um, That means there are certain things within a game. If an action takes one-tenth of a second, person-to-person, that's reactable at a very high level. But online, if it puts one you know, one thirtieth of a second of delay on, that action suddenly unreactable and the strategy becomes a lot better. And so what they are observing is some of the people who are performing the best and some of the strategies that are doing the best in these online competitions are people who never perform well or strategies that never work out well in real life, right? And people are looking at the comps and not saying, well, that's a shit competition, it's invalid at all because it's the best that people can do. But what they are saying is that like, this form of competition doesn't test exactly the same things as what we test when we when we compete in person. And the same thing's kind of true with powerlifting. If you get two very high-level competitors in the same room being coached by good coaches, you are testing their ability to make attempts under pressure knowing that it's important. You're testing the coach's ability to appraise the maximum the maximum strength of the other lifter and put in smart strategic attempt selections. You're testing your ability to manipulate your attempts so that the other person has to go unexpectedly or like, or, you know, buy time for your athlete or any of those things. You're, you're testing all of these skills that are really important fundamentals of powerlifting competition that are taken away when you're competing in separate venues. And instead, you're literally just testing, can your person lift the absolute most weight and how can you manipulate circumstances to make sure that they do that and hope that it's enough to win. And it's, that's not too far from what it is to compete in powerlifting, but it's far enough that it's just different in soul. You know? well, yeah, we often say that the, the strongest lifter doesn't always win. No. And in this instance, they almost do, provided they make lifts. You know, one thing that, that I'll say is, you know, the strongest lifter doesn't always win, the best lifter wins. Um, and that, you know, means making lifts, picking the right attempts, and, you know, having the coach to do that for you. Um, whereas in this situation, it's like, okay, who puts up the biggest total here? Who puts up the biggest total here? It's not the same. It's not quite the same thing. No. All right. And then the final thing from the athlete perspective is limitations on crowds. So that's something that you immediately brought up as being probable. I personally, as a, as an athlete, would find lifting in the complete absence of a crowd a little bit underwhelming. Um, at first it was something that I found really, really sort of like scary and off-putting when I, when I started powerlifting, but now like the feeling of the crowd being there and like hearing noise and stuff is something that I quite enjoy. And I feel like the ability to sort of like deal with that pressure and center yourself and still like find where you're going to set your eyes and all of that stuff when a crowd is present is a really important competitive skill. And I think having no crowd would basically make a competition just feel like a much more drawn out gym test to me. Do you agree? I do. Um, but I also think there are certain people who wouldn't be affected by it. Like I don't think I would be affected by that at all. Um, I don't think I get anything really out of a crowd. I've, um, done a testing, you know, recently, how long ago was that? 12 weeks ago. Yeah. There was like, what, 20 people there. Yeah, and I wasn't even clapping. And half of them were half of them were lifting, and we had fake refs and spotters, and it was like pretty much like five people who weren't actually doing a job. Yeah, and you know I lifted the best I had, so I don't know if that would affect me, um, but I can definitely see, you know, some people feeding off the energy from a crowd. 
yeah, whether or not it would affect you, I would say it's definitely different, right? And I yeah, think, absolutely. I think but yeah, you're right. It just feels like a gym session. Well, if you're somebody who is like, this is your first time ever competing in powerlifting, I've had a number of clients who like, they don't lift especially well, they don't win or anything, but it's like really exhilarating to feel like there's 50 or 100 people in a room who are just supporting you because like everybody knows what effort looks like and that's one of the awesome things about powerlifting competition like whether you're supporting 50 kilos or 500 kilos the crowd will be excited to see you try your best and so if you're like early in your competitive career and you walk in one of the things that makes you want to come back is that feeling of like wow i like all my effort in the past however many weeks was crystallized today and all these people recognized and supported it that feels good I think if there's not a crowd there and it's like this is your first time competing in a powerlifting comp just to change the goalposts a bit, then that's also taking away a really like nice part of the experience. Yeah. Um, I think maybe... Do you think maybe that, that people would be less likely to come back if they were to do their first comp without a crowd? I I actually do. Um, yeah. I... I... I think you would have to sort of communicate to somebody that like, hey, this isn't how it always is. But even then, like you're sort of just taking away that big reward, right? Like, you know, we always talk about how like how there's this emotional reward around competing and people should get involved and like feel the atmosphere and enjoy what it's like and stuff. I think if you take that away, it's just a slightly harder sell. I, th- I think to, to play devil's advocate, there's a lot of people who don't like lifting in front of crowds and are actually put off competing because they don't want to wear a singlet in front of a bunch of people. Yeah, Who sure. may, this may be a good gateway to get them to do so. Yeah. Given there are no crowds now. Well, I presume there'll be no crowds now. But again, like how many people do you know who've expressed those those concerns who have done it in spite of not really wanting to, realized it wasn't so bad and suddenly loved it? Like for me, a large number. For sure, but you may be able to get people in there without the pushing yeah. first. Yeah, but that's true. Like, I mean, I've had lots of clients who I will start coaching them and then I'll say, okay, let's like work towards a comp and they go, oh, I don't know if I'm ready. And then I can say, okay, we'll work towards a testing day instead. And that's essentially what we're talking about here with our crowds is basically a glorified testing day, yeah, except true. to be much more official. And I, f- I feel like they have um, 90% of that kind of uh, feeling of positivity that they would if they were to do a comp. Like it's it's quite similar. Yeah, I guess my answer pretty much, the 90-10 split you described is really good. My answer settled on the 10% that you miss and probably misses the 90% that you actually have. Mm. You know what I mean? Yep. All right. Do you have anything to add from the athlete perspective? Because then I want to talk about us as coaches. For the multi-venue thing? Or just for the the changes that we're expected to have? Um, I think it depends what the changes are. Because like, if there are things like you can't share chalk, you can't share talc, you can't... Oh, fuck, um, you can't share chalk. Like the, bo- the bar needs to be rubbed between lifters. Um, I don't know exactly what the rules are going to be, so it's hard to say. Mm. Yeah, I got to say the potential for disruptions to warm-ups is also going to be really big. Mm. Like if it happens to be that you can only have like one lifter per rack or like the bar has to be wiped down between warm-up attempts and things, spacing warm-ups is going to be way harder. It's going to take longer, you know, and that lifter who shows up not knowing what they're doing and asks you to strip 220 down to 70 so they can quickly do their first warm-up is going to be really, really annoying. I mean, potentially coaches wear gloves. Yeah. Uh, for loading plates, potentially you, you know, let's say you have three racks in the warm-up area, you know, you, before the group starts, you nominate, you know, two or three lifters per rack and you can't use any other rack just to yeah. mitigate that risk. But 
Yeah, I'm not too sure. Yeah, it'll be an interesting time. All right, as coaches, um, I wrote down a bunch of things that I think are gonna are gonna be affected by this whole change. So the first one I wrote was um, the idea of like managing athlete expectations, particularly around disrupted competition schedules. Mm-hmm. So Alex, do you have anybody who wants to compete in the short term? No, I actually don't. Oh, that's fortunate. Um, I can imagine, um, and I want you to imagine too, both Alex and the listeners at home. This is a rhetorical, please imagine. Um, somebody's come out of lockdown. They haven't really had access to much training equipment. They've been doing like body weight, band resistance stuff, whatever. They've maintained muscle quite well. They're a real keen bean. They go, thank God I can go back to powerlifting. Let's do a competition in late July. So it's like, okay, we're going to have five or six weeks of training with the barbell. As a coach, you then have to have a discussion with that athlete about like how likely are they to express their best? How are we going to have to manage their training to limit the chance of injury if they're reintroducing really heavy powerlifting loads quickly? You know, what are we going to do in your prep that's different? So in that instance, you're probably not going to handle the same the same um, relative loads as you might have in prior competitions. So how are you going to set expectations for the comp on the basis of your training? What goals do we really have in doing this comp? Like, are we here to have fun or are we here to try and do our best results and if we're trying to do our best results is this the smartest way to go about it um i imagine that there's going to have to be a lot of that happening with coaches where we start balancing like what would be optimal versus what is like practical versus what is desirable um and how how do do we then communicate that to athletes that have like clarity of purpose still believe in what they're doing and and feel like they're they're going to put their best forward and not not focus too much on the potential drawbacks um, but enough that people make like informed decisions, you know? Yeah, I think the first place to start is what's the purpose of the competition? Um, if it is just to get your feet wet and sort of like set a baseline for the rest of the year, then I think it's a perfectly legitimate reason to do a competition. If you've been able to train at pretty much full capacity throughout this time and you feel like you mainly need five, six, seven weeks to jump straight into a comp, then that's also probably fine. But if you're anywhere in the middle, I don't, think it's a good idea to rush into it and i would be trying to talk people into sort of being a little bit more patient and sort of earning the sort of like taking the time to sort of build back to regular training you know over the course of six to ten weeks once gyms open and then look at doing a comp um just because most people are going to be a little bit disappointed if they don't put out what they thought they were capable of or maybe what they were capable of before lockdown happened Mm. so i think it's it's very important that you know we explain you know if you do if you do um compete in this competition at this time you know you're probably not going to put your best best effort out there do you think it's still worth it and if they say yes then of course we go for it but if they say oh you know you're probably right we might want to push it back then you know that's great too yeah for sure and what about maintaining motivation? You spoke about how like some high-level athletes, particularly when, when they've got that like withdrawal of, of high-level competition, are going to suffer a bit of a hit to motivation. For somebody like that specifically, how would you, how would you want to sort of address it? Um, I think it's just education. You know, what, what goes into a successful performance? What are the things that we can do in training that don't require us to compete or prep for a competition? that can get the needle moving in the right direction you know is there things that you can do to work on your technique is there ways we can just you know keep training in a productive sense to build towards something later um but yeah i think that's just a conversation that you have to have with someone you know 
um, weighing up variables. Yeah, I think in the case of somebody who's like been raring to go for say like their first Open Nationals or something, um, then it's going to be a pretty big hit to motivation to be like, okay, like I'm not going to be able to do that this year or my training's been really messed up and I'm not going to do the performance I've worked for for a while. Um, But I think that reframing that you said and saying like, you know, how can we sort of make lemonade out of the lemons that we've been dealt here? um, That's going to be useful. But I've actually found the converse to be true so I've a I've a few athletes who would be national level competitors who may not compete at nationals this year for a variety of reasons, most of which are practical. Um, and for a couple of them, it's like they they almost feel on the hamster wheel of like always doing the highest level competitions they can because that's just part of what they do, right? And then when you when you say, well, what about if we we said, hey, you know, we're not going to force it this year, like it's not that practical let's let's look towards like putting out your best nationals performance next year but do some things this year just for fun and just to get better and take the focus off of that and put the focus back on you and you as a lifter for some for some people they've been like oh that's actually Mm. that sounds like a good thing to do and it's if anything maybe not spurred motivation but like but given a bit more clarity of purpose to them than than they would have had had we said like you know, let's just rage against it and try and like absolutely do nationals irrespective, you know? Yeah, it's it's a switch between, you know, focusing on um, competition and being competitive versus focusing on yourself and improving. Mm. And if you do the latter, you will be better in the former. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And sometimes it like takes a it takes a break to almost realize, you know? Yeah, and, and the other thing to note to mention is um you know, you're not the only one in this situation. No. Like there are, I'm sure, lots and lots of people who this year they were looking to do their first Open Nationals. And, you know, it's just shit luck. Like that's just the bottom line. Yeah. Like there's no point complaining about it and crying over it. You know, get yourself better for next time or pick another comp later in the year. Pick a pick a high priority comp at the end of the year that's got a prize money or something instead. Off topic discussion. In life, how generally useful do you think it is to like compare your misfortune to other people's? Because like you could also say to them, "I know you're missing your first Open Nationals, but like a few million people are going to die from this virus, and like lots of people have lost their livelihoods." I have this feeling that like whilst it's important to have an idea of con- context, when you point out to people that like other people are suffering, it doesn't do anything to alleviate the thing that's upset them. You know what I mean? Like they're still upset. They're just now upset and cognizant that other people have bad things happening to them too. I think it depends uh, on the context. If you say like, oh dude, it's all good. Don't worry. You can do another comp. There's people in Africa who haven't even eaten today. Like that's completely on the other side of the, of the spectrum. But yeah. if you say something that's relatable, like, oh yeah, you know, old mate in the other suburb across from you is also wanted to do nationals and he can't either. So like, you're not the only one. Yeah, yeah, like it's, 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 there's a difference. Yeah, there's got to be a degree of equivalence. You can't yeah, exactly. just reach for like the fucking worst thing that's ever happened to humanity or something and be like, hey, like the absence of your power thing is not as bad as yeah. fucking, I don't know, like mass starvation or something. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I love that there's sober children in Africa thing when you're, when you're at the <laughs> pub and you're like, oh, you know, I'm not really feeling it today, fellas. And they're like, no, fuck no, like get on it, you know? And you're like, fuck, I really should, hey. <laughs> kids in Africa who have never had a beer. <laughs> Honestly, there are. <laughs> I can't believe we're laughing about that, but that is tragic, but it's also true. Um, fuck. <laughs> All right. Um, I did mention the implications of prepping on short 
short notice and with shorter periods and particularly coming off of relative day training to prep so what are a few practicalities um or a few like planning considerations so let's go back to my example of the person who's come out of lockdown having trained but not trained with a barbell want to compete in six or eight weeks time so they're pretty much starting from scratch with barbell lifting what are a few things that you would envisage as as being important to think about there well the first one would be how much training they can tolerate and it's going to be a hell of a lot less than what they would have been able to tolerate before lockdown so um i would start off with less exercises per session and less sets per exercises sorry let's set less sets per exercise um and i would also keep relative intensity down so like if we were aiming for rpe six to seven we might take that down to five to begin with and see what they can kind of tolerate um but yeah it's going to be really hard initially to set um loads if they haven't hit a barbell in 12 weeks like i guess where would where would you start with that if you were programming someone like a you know three sets of five yeah i don't even know if i'd start with three sets of five so like i think the overall contour of their training is going to be much like (laughs) it might be a little bit steeper in that you're going to start lighter but i don't think you'll get as heavy Mm -hmm. um and I do think what you said about having a little bit in the bag in terms of relative difficulty is going to be important too because like whether or not it's that you've actually become like resensitized to training, you if you are coming off relative detraining, you certainly don't need as much to gain back to where you were and the potential risk of pushing too hard is like increased risk of injury for no greater return. Mm-hmm. So probably I would start with things being relatively easier and I'd probably delay letting things get hard until much closer to competition um and i don't think i think if it is literally you're making up mostly lost ground then i think if you spend a lot of your time actually trying to like accumulate volume with slightly more general training and then just abruptly taper at the end you might find that you still actually like do reasonably well at the end because if you don't have like you already don't have your base of barbell lifting there so there's no point really trying to like get hyper specific and peak off of no base. Mm-hmm. But if you go back to being like, we're going to reestablish our base and we're going to give you just enough exposure to high intensities to be like ready to go and do a heavy single. So maybe instead of doing a 92 to 95% single to cap out your comp, if you end up doing like an 85 to 90% double or triple or something that moves really nicely, or maybe like a single at 90% or something like that, where it's like, oh, it's heavy enough that you can lift weights. But beneath that, you've been chewing through lots of, you know, fives and sixes and stuff at RPE six to seven with loads of you, you're moving quite well and like you're doing some general exercise and you're just, you're feeling good and strong. I'd, I'd say you actually would do okay mm. off of that. Um, I guess my question for you then would be, you mentioned 90%, 95%, whatever you mentioned percentage. How do you set what that is? Because you, we don't really know what 100% is. No. Um, and I guess that's kind of where, what I was getting at with, you know, setting the expectations in the first place. We don't really know what 100% is, so it can be hard to plan. Yeah, but sometimes what, like, what I think you would observe, um, obviously I haven't lived through a pandemic in the past, um, but what I think you might observe under these types of circumstances, you say to somebody, first week we're doing two sets of 10 and let's aim for a target of RPE like five to six. So they're going to be really easy and maybe target loads 50% of your prior one RM or something. Um, But just like go out, see how you go. Do a set of 10 and if it's really easy, go up. And if it's really hard, go down, let me know. And probably they'd be like disappointed with how hard things felt. 
But I would say that as the loads progressed, the RPEs would almost regress as they get that initial conditioning back. And then it would only be in the last few weeks where because you've actually exposed them to enough training to have like reasonably made gains back that you could start inferring where their strength is. So maybe you so maybe in those last few weeks you would look at say your RPE to percentage chart and say, okay, we're gonna do we're gonna do a double and I want it to feel somewhere between like a, a seven and an eight and a half nine. Um go out and feel it out. This is roughly what I expect the load to be. And just depending on how that moves, you can start inferring, well, you know, like how strong are they actually right now? And so say you give somebody a double and you say your target load is what would have been 87% for your prior 1RM. If it moves, great. Then you might be like, oh, wow, like they're actually lifting really well. And you basically can't plan around that. And if it moves like it's really hard, you might say, oh, they probably haven't had enough exposure to heavy lifts to really be their strongest right now. Let's taper things back. And still, still that would give you enough information to come in on comp day with an idea of roughly where their max might be. I think the best way to, to go about it would be be to take it week by week rather than plan things too far ahead because you just honestly don't know where they're going to end up. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, throw some throw some some relatively sub max work work at them, see how they go, and then adjust your plan based off that. Um, and then for the actual competition itself, um, treat this like it's the first comp. If you go back and listen to our um, podcast about first competitions and attempt selection, talk about you know how to open really light. Um, you know, all those things. Yeah, and by the time you have somebody who's like actually an advanced lifter, they will probably have enough awareness of how they are moving and like how strong they feel and stuff that when you come in on comp day, they're not going to completely lead you astray if they do their opener and they say, hey, actually, I don't feel too bad today. Like, you know, whatever. So they open at 220 kilos on a squat. If they're reasonably advanced and they're like their best squat prior was 245, they're not going to do 220 and say, let's jump to 235 unless 220 actually felt good and you'd probably agree right like when you when you watch them do that weight so i think like with more advanced lifters you can rely a little bit more on their intuition and that's going to be helpful both on comp day and in prep when you're asking them to use rpes to find like what the loads should be provided you communicate well and with less advanced lifters i think what you said about treating it like a first comp is really smart because like what does conservatism lose you in that circumstance anyway nothing right like you probably just have another comp where you hit eight or nine lifts and you have a productive training cycle and everything's fine um so there's no point like risking risking it all for not much yeah i want to go back to your point on advanced lifters if you're an advanced lifter who hasn't trained much during covid and you've just been doing body weight and banded stuff and you're planning on competing in six weeks don't yeah that's probably true <laughs> like absolutely absolutely don't if you're like a middling or lower level intermediate or below then fine like you, you may be able to do okay given the expectation is there that it's kind of like a, a base setting comp which sets you up for later in the year and it's not actually a goal setting comp and it's not a sort of hit PBs and go balls to the walls comp. Yeah. Yolo Cowabunga. <laughs> That's Yolo Cowabunga 3000 I believe is, <laughs> is what I say. Um, I do agree although I do like I've heard enough anecdotes of people who are really well trained who have been forced to take some time off and after a really short time coming back been stronger than they were before that I wouldn't completely exclude the possibility. I just wouldn't plan for it. Um, and I think like in some instances, all that happens is like you wash away a lot of fatigue and old niggles and you do come in and get some nice productive training in and recover well and feel good and psychologically fresh. But it's not the type of thing that I'd bank on. Like I wouldn't come out of lockdown and be like, fuck yeah, like I've fresh comp in six weeks. 
But if it was that you came out of lockdown and for some reason you had to compete on shorter notice and you planned conservatively, you might get lucky, you know? Yeah, I mean, we've spoken quite a lot about how it takes a bit more time to, you know, acclimate to heavier loads the stronger that you are. And I think that's kind of the, the big point home with that is that, you know, the stronger you are, the less likely that you're going to perform on such short notice without a lot of training behind yeah, it. For sure. And we've kind of alluded to the idea of like limitating, <laughs> limitating, limiting attrition and injury in um, in this last bit to put it very briefly from my perspective so limiting injury I think gradual reintroduction to training is fine like for most people unless you do something drastically stupid your chances of having like a catastrophic injury probably not that high but it would be higher than were you to start sensibly and I also don't see the benefit in going full cowabunga mode 3000 as I say um, first week back in the gym. So probably starting easy, ramping up loads and volumes gradually is smart. Um, but limiting attrition is a separate topic. And when I wrote that, what I meant is like people dropping off either due to due to like a lack of motivation, a lack of clarity in their goals or to like suffering niggles and feeling like they've gone backwards. And so I think to limit attrition, what we want is like clear communication between athletes and coaches setting some goals whether or not they're competitive for the short and medium term um and just like you know creating a sense of sort of support and purpose in what you're doing and making sure people's eyes are firmly planted on the fact that like they're powerlifting for fun so we should be able to find some fun and purpose in what we do alex much to add or no nothing to add all right and then we've spoken about the that's strategic a, that's a shot for whoever wrote that um review what take a shot if will says you have anything to add oh yeah true um not if you're in africa you know <laughs> we, are, we are going off I had a, and by going I, off I mean we're going off air probably I had soon. a really bad joke to make but I'm not going to make it I'll tell you off air okay good um, <laughs> far out alright and then we've spoken already a little bit about practicalities um, for competing as well we spoke about like how social distancing and limited warm up space might impact us but we're not sure the other thing I wrote down well, I wrote down two things one is spitting in cups Alex weight cuts are going to get a little bit harder i don't think anyone's going to want you spitting near them for the time being if it's your own cup is it not fine if it, as long as you're not sharing a cup yeah and so long as like the guy who's trying to rehydrate doesn't like snowball your what spit. if you're wearing a mask and you spit under the mask into the cup <laughs> maybe imagine that you get you get a um you know how some people have been wearing those plastic face shields get one that like comes out away from your mouth a little bit and then has like a, a little you bucket know, attached to it well yeah you know like the the drip container thing from your barbecue so all the like yep yeah the tray yeah you have the tray under it like from your barbecue so you can just spit and it just trickles down your face mask into there perfect potentially perfect um and then the other one i wrote was equipped training is going to be a little bit difficult right now because you can't have five people helping you put your clothes on yeah i said that to angus when i was on the high performance podcast i'm like equipped is probably dead because of covid (laughs) you know i know that um well, actually, the only real person I can say this for is Natalie Hansen, who we had on the podcast. Great episode. Um, she, she's she been doing some really, really productive training during lockdown, but m- almost all her training has been raw. Mm, Bryce um, Korchek, the same. He's been training raw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I actually, like, jokes aside, I think equipped competing and training is going to be very, very difficult for the time being. So all the things we've said up until now have been basically about raw powerlifting. If you're an equipped lifter, sucked in and why yeah what are you doing (laughs) (laughs) yeah things are going to be tough for equipped competing all right and then um we've spoken a little bit about solutions 
and action steps. But I just want to I want to give like what my vision for a nationals would be this year as somebody who's most interested in like the sanctity of the competition. So for me, I don't think we should run a nationals that just allows anyone who qualifies to turn up this year. I think in order to get the best competition, and by the best I mean like the best people all in the same building competing against each other at the highest level that we can out under the current restrictions, I think it should just be an invitation-only competition and it might still have to be run in a local venue because they can't do it at a fitness expo. Um, But I think they should have an invitation-only nationals and I think that, and the IPF should probably do this too, that the rules for setting international records should be relaxed given the circumstances to be that if there are international quality referees there that at a national level competition you still can set world records um and i think that by having the referee standards set the way that it normally is um and possibly with a jury system if you think that's necessary but having that and having having it done in an invitational setting so that there is still the strategic imperative for people to make lifts would make a world record lift to me in every other way just as respectable as if it was done at an international comp. What do you think of that? I don't know if it's possible to, with the restrictions on international travel, to actually have that happen. Have international level refs? No, have the have an international competition in one venue. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying for like our nationals right. and USAPL nationals or whatever, if they were all runners just invitation only, but you had international re- level refs there, then it could be that in the USAPL, Ray Williams squats 500 kilos, say, and it would be recognized as a world record if they had the right refs there. Uh, I mean, I don't know about the the record thing. I don't really have a strong opinion either way. But I do think that all national events should be invitation only and they should try and get each each weight class down to sub-20 people. Yeah. Um, And, you know, in America, that's quite hard with some of the more competitive classes to get it below 20. Maybe it's 30 over there. Um, but yeah, I definitely agree with you in that instance. I would be looking at November, December to hold a nationals just, and I would put the date out there now and I'd say, okay, look, we're going to hold nationals on you know this day, the 20th of November, for instance. Um, it's going to be at this gym, um, and it's going to be, you know, invite only under 16 people for each weight class. And then Maybe. that way you get everyone sees that notice sees that email and they go okay i'm gonna go for that competition yeah and maybe you could also have like multi-level competitions or multi-venue competitions as like um as qualifiers or like feeder competitions so maybe you say like we're going to invite the top 10 from the weight class and then and then another whatever it is four people per weight class who who are the highest totaling people from from these three qualification events and then that makes them a more interesting competitive spectacle than they otherwise would be. Yeah, like a qualify. Yeah, that's a, actually a really good idea. Yeah, well, there you go, Robert Wilkes. You know my number. Give me a ring, um, and we'll have a talk. That's what I reckon. Um, anything to add? Um, yeah, I, I really don't think they should be rushing um, big events like you know, like nationals, for instance, or like IPF Worlds. I think they should just kind of set the goalposts a little bit later, give people time to plan and prepare. Um, because there is still that concern for a lot of people that they may the event may be cancelled mm-hmm. because we don't know if there's going to be like a second outbreak of this um, in any country, and you know we may go back to restrictions in a few months. We don't know, um, so a lot of people aren't signing up because of that. Yeah, and I think if you set the goalpost much later, people are going to be a little bit more certain that things are going to go ahead. Yeah, for sure. 
All right, let's take a quick break and then it's overrated, underrated, properly rated time. Did I say it the right way around? Yeah, you did. Fuck yeah. Weekly Weights. All right, we're back. It's Weekly Weights. I'm Will with Alex and we're doing the segment that Alex stole from Massonomics or whatever. Was it Massonomics? That was the allegation. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's overrated, underrated, probably rated. So Alex, overrated, underrated, probably rated. Plate loaded machines. And I want to just make this clear. It's the machines where you get like weight plates and put them on the machine. Not the machines where they have like a pin and you put it in place. Well, that would be called a pin loaded machine. Will. Yeah, but I just want the listeners. I understand that you know that. I want the listeners to know that. Plate loaded machines. Underrated. Why is that? I feel like, well, all the plate loaded machines, like all hammer strength machines are plate loaded mm. and those are all awesome. Yep. Um, I feel like you can add small increments so you can overload a little bit more accurately. True. Um, I don't know if I have any, any more points in that. So I agree that being able to change the, the plates on them to a smaller degree makes overloading them better. Without doubt. I also agree that Hammer Strength make the best machines. Like, their high-low row is, honest to God, the best machine in the whole gym. The best machine in the gym is the Atlantis Pendulum Squat, which is uh, also play-loaded. I don't enjoy the Pendulum Squat. Like, I appreciate that it's an extremely good machine, but, like, I get pleasure out of using most Hammer Strength upper body machines. They are excellent. Just big bonus. <laughs> huge actually in my case pretty well underwhelming bonus but they're but they're present you just can't tell um so no i love them however oh and one more thing but this actually doesn't have to do with the plate loading it has to do with the cam they're the plate loaded ones are usually designed really well so the strength curve is like good whereas a lot of the pin loaded machines like the cable stack just moves as you lift things and so there's like really abrupt uh bumps i was going to say spikes and bumps i said spumps in the in the difficulty of the movement so i do like plate loader machines for all those reasons but one of the best things about a pin loader machine is that you just put the pin in and lift and like when you've done say five sets of squats and five sets of bench and you're going to go do five sets of five on another movement because you're a ripto acolyte the last thing you want to do is have to fucking carry plates around and put it on a machine again it's so annoying well usually Gyms have their plates organized so that the plates are quite close to the plate-loaded machines. Not correct? always. Usually. Okay. If, but you, not if your gym doesn't, yeah. go to find a new gym. Okay, fair enough. Um, well, I would say, they're, I would say they're, they're underrated, but I'm saying underrated with some reservations because I think they're awesome, but I would rather somebody else did the plate-loading for me. Yeah, I, I agree. The, the convenience of a pin-loaded machine is unmatched. Easily unmatched. But is it worth the trade-off? Usually, yes. <laughs> and that's why you're small. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, and I all, I can't even be bothered loading the machine so you can imagine how much I half-ass my sets. Yeah. <laughs> all right, next one. All right, Will. Overrated, underrated, properly rated, if it fits your macros. Mm, overrated. Um... And this is another classic, not overrated because it's bad. Overrated because it's overrated. Um, and I think our episode with Mac last week covered a bit of the ground about why I would think this. Um, but 
food choice is a really, really good and convenient vehicle to help us drive down calorie intake. And the problem with... Drive down calorie avenue with a vehicle. Continue. (laughs) Thank you, Alex, for that. Um, Fucking hell. Um, But like the problem with if it fits your macros is not actually what it is meant to entail. It's how people use it. Um, And so the fact that people use if it fits your macros to sort of like invert this the like useful hierarchy of fat loss and forget about like choosing their foods and structuring their meals intelligently and just like count their macros and make dumb food choices makes it bad if you if you say i'm going to structure my diet the most intelligent way i can and like say for fat loss eat a lot of high fiber foods with high food volume high water content reasonably low fats largely unprocessed lean proteins all that shit and within that, I'm going to bias small parts of my selection um, to suit my enjoyment, provided that it meets my macronutrient needs. I'm going to be fine. Literally perfect. But that's not how the majority of people operate with it. They go in with the assumption that like macros are macros. And like at the absolutely strictest physiological sense, that's nearly true. Not entirely, but it's very much close enough for practical purposes. But at the like behavioral and making you feel good and perform well level, it's not true. And so for that reason, I think it's overrated because everybody who starts with if it fits in macros goes through that phase of like just eating like a fucking idiot. And then only some people actually come out the other side without like a basically disordered relationship with food that they thought they were curing by letting themselves have ice cream during a cut. That's what I think. I I agree. And I, that's exactly what I wanted to set you up for. Okay. You just, you wanted the rant that Mac didn't give you. Yes. Um, I think, yeah, people obviously take it way too far and they put macros in front of food choice and I've, what I see a lot is you know people will go okay these are my macros what can I fit or how much of X can I fit yeah and then they kind of like fit their whole foods in after they've already planned to have their ice cream and two chocolate cakes yeah it's like oh shit I've had two whole McCain's pizzas I can only fit a celery stick and it's like well it's no <laughs> yeah. one's fault but four, yours four scoops of whey for dinner <laughs> yeah that's so dumb is that it? that's it oh yeah well sick I'm glad we're in agreement Alex you basically have a masters of nutrition and dietetics now mm. because you've done this podcast with me you've done the podcast with Mac it would require it would have required me to have actually listened to anything that you've had to say though. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you can't have everything. I didn't listen at uni. How do you know I'm even a proper dietitian? Fair. Nah, I actually You have to get fifty percent, right? I've definitely listened to fifty oh, oh come on. <laughs> <laughs> um no, nah, it's actually like the biggest example of like it's not it's not quite the Dunning Kruger effect, but it's like the when you know nothing but you think you know a little bit, you make it is basically the Dunning Kruger effect. But so with nutrition pretty much what happened is at first I knew nothing then I learned some stuff and I was like well macros matter and so I'd be like listening to people talking at uni about like how you know weight loss diet should focus on x y and z and I'm like that's so fucking dumb because you haven't even told anybody about energy balance which is actually the thing that's important and like the fact that people don't understand energy balance is one of the reasons why all these fad diets exist so I was like you're so dumb why don't you just tell them about energy balance and then you can tell them that shit after and they can follow it if they want as long as they know they have to be in a deficit. And then like, obviously I've now come full circle and been like, you know, energy balance is the thing that's important, but like at a behavioral level, it's so much more convenient to just focus on eating, you know, like following these dietary guidelines and stuff if you want to actually control people's body weight long-term because doing that sets you up to do it. And the same thing kind of happens with training. 
it's like at first you know nothing and you train like a fucking idiot and then you learn a little bit and you're like oh you're just fucking progressive overloads all it's important and then then you like start learning things and suddenly you're fucking trying to undulate your conjugation and fucking put a band on everything and it, none of it works and then once you've come full circle you're like uh, just train hard and progressively overload and like change your training so you can do it and it's like oh well you know like, like that whole middle ground section was you just looking like a dickhead who thought you knew more than you did you know mm-hmm. so there you go that's a rant that i don't know probably none of you signed up for but now you've got it um eat your vegetables you can't have it back eat your veggies lift your weights that's actually that's not bad is that not what luke tolik always says like at his, at his presentations eat your veggies and it just lift keeps your coming back to like just remember to eat your vegetables and sleep well or something Go he to, might have go to said bed that. early and eat your, eat your broccoli. He goes to bed fucking early. I don't Earlier know. Than you? Yeah, hundred percent. So, Luke, who we've had on the podcast now three times, um, there was one stage where he was going to bed, honest to God, like seven p.m. What? and he'd wake up at like four thirty-five every morning. To be fair, um, and he used seven to, p.m. It was really early. Four thirty-five. That's nine and a half to ten hours. He likes surely to sleep. he wasn't getting ten hours. Hundred percent. He would go to bed so early so early and he went through a phase of like living a very minimalist lifestyle so he did did a lot of his own cooking um which he still does but he also like deliberately didn't have many material possessions like focused on focused on very few things at a time um had quite an ascetic lifestyle obviously like he liked it but i think he's moved a little bit on from that without moving too far from it but he was going to bed so early and um and he and I don't believe this is incredibly personal, so I'm not. So I'm just going to share it. Um, he and his wife also had separate beds that they connected to each other, so it wasn't like they had a full sleep divorce. But Luke is really tall; he's like six three. So that's not really tall, but he's a pretty tall guy. Is he? I reckon he's about I'm six. Like six one. He's he's tall and um, funny. His wife is not like a short woman, but she's considerably shorter. And so his bed was like a full foot longer than hers. And they were just butted up next to each other because I think they liked different mattress thicknesses or something. So he was full on like the ultimate maximize your sleep quality guy where he was like going to bed really early, cutting out all all distractions like two hours before bed, minimal lifestyle disruption, have my bed entirely suited to me and my missus can have her bed entirely suited to her and we'll just put them next to each other. And that was it. Can't you get a mattress design that has like is split in half and has different firmness on either side i'm pretty sure that exists yeah but if you get one of them and then you share it with your missus all that happens is they lie diagonally across it and you can't sleep hey but isn't that like the perfect reason to keep them on their side or do you just give them like 70 percent of the mattress because that's how much they take it's, it's not about giving them anything it's like owning a jumper when you have a girlfriend it's like it's not your jumper anymore you know same thing when you have a bed your side of the bed is their side of the bed. man the number of jumpers that i've grown out of that have been conveniently shrunk in the in the dryer oh, that's weird. and given Chris given to Chrissy like she's definitely throwing my jumpers in the dryer for like three hours well, just can, so she can have them I can say for certain you're not throwing any of your own washing in the washing machine or dryer are you Alex she washes and I do the folding oh really <laughs> I do the folding that's the, that's the agreement <laughs> do you ever iron anything no yeah, I was gonna Why would I iron anything <laughs> to be honest I like cannot iron a shirt to save my life. I know how to I, I can iron a shirt but I've got the two shirts that I ever wear are like those ones that don't require ironing so you just yeah, hang them classic. up and they just go they just sort themselves out Mate, that's why honestly um, oh my god what's the thing that's like canvas um, 
not oh, um, linen. Linen, yeah, that's yeah. it. That's what's great about a linen shirt. Like, doesn't need ironing. Doesn't need ironing. You hang it and like that little crumply thing. It's part of the look. I um I was wearing a linen shirt once, and Billy Asprey was like, "Oh, dude, you need to iron your shirt." And I'm like, "Dude, it's linen. You don't need to iron linen." And she like every time I see her, brings it up. Thinks yeah. I'm a loser for not ironing my linen shirt. Well, if Billy has for any reason listened to this podcast and persisted for this long... I don't think she'd still be listening, but I'm sure JP is. Hey, JP. Hey, JP. Play Billy this bit. You're so wrong about linen. That's the whole point is that you don't iron it. I actually took a linen shirt traveling for three months in Central America because I knew that if I wanted to look good, I could pull it crumpled out of my bag and put it on and it immediately looks And good. not only did you not iron it, you didn't wash it the whole time either. 100%. Why would I wash it? <laughs> All right. That's Weekly Ways for the week, guys. Thank you very much. I'm Will at W.BerkmanPT. I'm Alex. Alex Hayes underscore process. We will talk to you next week.